There is an unseen hand to me that leads Welcome to the Unseen Hand Podcast, featuring the pulpit ministry of missionary evangelist Ronnie Brown. Listen in as Brother Ronnie shares the truth of the Bible and how God's unseen hand can lead and guide your life with each and every verse. This hand still leads me as I go. God, we pray. Pray you'd speak to our hearts this evening. God, as ugly as it might be to take the mirror of God's word and the mirror of Jonah's life and hold it up to our own, I pray we'd see it with eyes wide open. God, that whatever we match in likeness to Jonah, we'd repent of it. We'd get away from it, Father. God, I pray we'd see the depths of your love, both for Jonah and for the people of Nineveh. Depths of love that we cannot even fathom. Oh, God, let us delve into your heart in this message. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. The other day I was in Evan's room. And Evan was showing me with a great amount of pride the, uh, the organization within his tackle box. Evan has become quite the fisherman, at least to me, he's quite the fisherman. And he was showing me all the different and various lures in his arsenal to catch fish. He picked, I picked up, as I was watching, I picked up a bag of squishy worms. I don't know, I just can't, I can't go through, uh, I can't seem to go through the fishing department in, 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 uh, in Bass Pro or a Fisherman's Warehouse or wherever without taking and squeezing them, them little, them little uh, rubber lures, you know, in the bag there. And I picked it up and I was squeezing it and he said, Devin said, oh, that's my favorite. That's the one that really the fish are biting on. And as I looked at it, it was just a a bag of these squishy rubber worms about six inches long with a flat curly tail that evidently when you dragged it through the water made this whipping whipping action and boy, it just attracted the fish. But I saw there's no hook in it. And so Evan, you know, he didn't even want me to ask, so he just kind of picked it up and showed me how, how he does it. He said, well, in just a matter of seconds, he pulled out this hook from his, from his uh, tackle box, and he began just like a whip, did it real fast, and he put that rubber worm down on that hook and put this crook in it. And, and right there where the crook of the hook was, he, he, he took it and made a little, a little crook in the worm, and, and he put the tail or the, 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 the sharp pointy end of that hook right into the bend of that. So it looked like a natural little S curve in that worm. But inside that worm was a deadly hook. And with a shy grin, he reached in there and pulled all this out and had it there. And he says, boy, and like showing it to me, he's like, this is what will catch him. This is what will get him every time. Now, I'm no fish psychologist. I'm not a biologist by any means, but... I played it over in my mind. What's actually happening? The little worm goes through the water and it has, because of its limber attitude, it has an action just like a real worm. And it's floating through the water and all of a sudden a bass catches a glint of the little, the little flakes of glitter inside. Oh, that looks good. And it had a strange scent to it. It kind of smells funny. So he probably caught a whiff, whiff of it. And then he saw it. And he begins to approach it and without even realizing that there is a hook inside of it. Because of its subtle placement, as soon as the fish bites down on it, 
it's going to sink into its jaw. And I'm telling you, that fish is not going anywhere. You remember the last chapter of the little book of Jonah? There's an innocent little story at the end. Remember, we've changed our focus. We were focused on Nineveh in chapter number 3. But now we've come down and we focused in on Jonah. And God gives us this little bitty story at the end of the book. And we can, all, we can all easily picture Jonah there. He's sulking in the scorching sun outside of Nineveh. He takes some branches and some, uh, some leaves and maybe some, uh, some uh, uh, bark and he, he puts together a makeshift little tent, a little hut, so to speak. And God gives him some shade. The little gourd comes up and kind of covers his head a little better. But then God quickly takes it away. And as usual, what does Jonah do? He gets mad about it. Anything don't go Jonah's way, he gets upset about it. And then there's this conversation between God and Jonah. And in that conversation is the hook. It's where God really shows Jonah the absurdity of his attitude. A hook that leaves Jonah evidently speechless. Did you notice how it ended? Jonah didn't have any words of response. You know, Jonah's been real good at saying something back to God. He's smarting off. Uh, coming back at God. And every time God says something, he's got a response. But it seems like at the end of the book, he's silenced. His mouth is shut up. A hook, this hook reveals the great depth of the love and the mercy of God. And a hook that may well lodge itself in your heart and my heart this very hour. I want you to see some things about this hook. Every one of us today can find ourselves on the hook of this story. Revealing how much like Jonah we really are. By recognizing three scenes in these few verses at the end of chapter 4. I want to show you three scenes. The first scene is this. Look at this very closely. I want you to see the preoccupation of Jonah's head. The preoccupation of Jonah's head. In chapter 3, Jonah had brought the message to the city of Nineveh that God's judgment was going to befall them in 40 days. Do you remember that story? How he come in there with a one sentence message, probably gave no more, certainly didn't give any less. That's all he's going to give is this one message. And the city reacted in a very unpredictable manner. As far as Jonah's concerned, the city repented. And God spared the city. And in verse 4, it's, uh, chapter 4, it starts out with Jonah being mad. He's hopping mad at God that God was merciful to Nineveh. And so Jonah goes out into the suburbs of Nineveh. Maybe he finds a high plateau, a high hill near Nineveh and looks at its great walls and maybe can peek down into the city a little bit. And there he builds a hut so that he can watch. You see, he wants a front row seat in case God changes his mind. In case his little pouting fit prevails on Almighty God. And so he can watch this, this great city come crumbling right in front of him. And as uncomfortable as it might be, I want all of us to crawl into the thinking head of Jonah for a moment. And I want you to see the things that are consuming his attention. First of all, I want you to see 
that his attention was drawn and we could see it in his pitiless desire. In verse number 5, Jonah was upset in verse number 4 or verse number 3. And so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in, in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. Jonah's in sulking mood. Children are known for this, aren't they? They don't get their way. You know, put your lip out. My dad was at the birthday party for Kaylin yesterday, and he was trying to show me how I pooch my lip out when, when things didn't go my way when I was a little boy. And he, he did all this trying to show me what it was like. But I, kids have a, have a tendency to pooch their lips out when things don't go their way, especially when they're younger. Well, evidently, that was Jonah. He was in sulking mood. He was furious at God. The text says that he built a booth outside the city that he might sit under it and see if God might change his mind and destroy Nineveh. Now the word booth is significant. There is a, there is a festivity documented in the Old Testament law called the the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. When we, uh, several, several years ago, when we went through the tabernacle, we went through all these different feasts. And we talked about the Feast of the Booths of the Tabernacle. You know, if you were a kid growing up in the Jewish home, this would have been your favorite time of year. Because the, the, the family left their brick and mortar house, they left their adobe houses, they went out into the wilderness, out into the woods, maybe the backyard, the front yard, across the street, and they would put together limbs and branches and, and make themselves a hut. And basically it was a camp out. The kids would have loved it being outside in a campfire and they would have had a great time. And it's supposed to be a feast of celebration and joy. You see, what they're doing is mimicking what their ancestors had done when they left Egypt's land. And they were on their way to the promised land. They'd been delivered from, from Egypt's bondage. And they were in those wilderness. And they might have been in a little hut, but God is providing for their needs. There's water from the rock. There's manna from heaven. Quail comes in. God was taking care of them. They might have lived in a little bitty shack, but it reminds them of how God protected them and kept them in that whole time. Well, the same word booth is the same word that Jonah is used here to refer to what Jonah built. So Jonah built a booth here. But instead of a celebration, instead of a great time of joy where, where people would remember how God delivered the people of Israel, how God is a provider and a sustainer, Jonah's inside that booth. can't believe God did this. I can't believe that that city has the gall or audacity to sit in that corner, in that pew, across from me. I cannot believe that that preacher has not done something about this. I cannot believe that they have the gall to come and sit in this building. That is exactly the attitude of Jonah. You know, truth be known, there's a lot of people that look a whole lot like Jonah. This is supposed to be a place of joy, celebration. We're supposed to come in and remember and recognize God's deliverance, His redemption, His mercy on us. What do we do? Can't believe this has happened to us again. I can't believe God didn't provide for us this time. I thought for sure He'd, be, he'd do this. and He just didn't do it my way. 
When's God going to take care of this? When's God going to take care of this problem? Right to the heart. Looks so much like Jonah. Looks so much like Jonah. Hey, you want to, you want to, you want to really hear? Okay. Last night, God turned me over his knee in a couple of things that I didn't expect. You know, when I come in on a Sunday morning and I sit in that little seat, and there ain't but about ten of us, or a Wednesday night, and ain't but about eight or five of us, I get to pooch mouth. God, why don't you do what? God, why? Why? God, why? Why? When I ought to be in hell with my back broke. When I ought not to even have a space, a place to preach His Word. When I ought not to have the honor of opening this book and sharing its truth with you. And I get the pooch mouth. Jonah's, a te- Jonah's mind is a terrible place to be, but oftentimes it looks just like ours. Why can't I rejoice when somebody else gets God's mercy and God's blessing instead of getting jealous? Instead of getting the pooch mouth, well, why don't he do that for me? Why didn't he do that in my place? That's exactly the attitude of Jonah. We can't let somebody else have a little grace have a little blessing and then us not get the pooch mouth. You let somebody buy a Lincoln, buy, buy a town car, pull up in the parking lot. You, I guarantee you. I guarantee the talk that happens. Here, it's the pitiless desire he had on Nineveh. God gave grace to Nineveh and blessing to Nineveh. And all Jonah can do is sulk about it. Notice second of all, his pitiless desire, but his personal delight. Look in verse number 6. And and the Lord prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head so to deliver him from his grief. And, And so Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Jonah made this little hut, you know. And I can see him there finding the best limbs and the most foliage he can find around about in the area and putting it together and embracing it up and, and, and liking it, you know. And I can see him, uh, uh, you can see him stuffing the corners of it. Maybe he's got some leaves and he stuffs this corner and that corner so the sun doesn't come down and beat on him. But as the hours went by and the wind blew, Parts of the booth got carried away. The sunlight began to come in and make its way into the tent. And now we'll now we look at this uh, at this closer. And, and in a in a moment, God will prepare a gourd that will be grown right over where Jonah is resting. Now, a, a natural it will be a natural protection. The gourd, we'll talk about this more in a minute. The gourd has these large leaves. They grow about eight foot tall. They make a good shadow. And so it was perfect for Jonah. And the text says that Jonah was exceeding glad. I think that's about the first time we've seen him happy in the whole book. Old Grumpy Gills here is happy. He's excited. He's thrilled at this this little measure of grace, this little protection. He is happy for once. He is pleased with what the Lord did did for a change. That phrase, exceeding glad, it means that he rejoiced with great joy. 
It seems that he is happiest. This is the happiest he's been in the entire book. He is enamored with this tree. If he had neighbors, he'd say, hey, did you check out my tree? It's just come up overnight. I can't believe it. It's just here. And it's pretty, I mean, I can't, it's the best shade. It's got a great fragrance. It's wonderful. Uh, I, I just can't believe it. Did you, did, you, did you see my tree? I got a great tree here. Now, he's forgotten all about Nineveh. You don't care nothing about Nineveh. It's this tree. I mean, it's a nice little spot up here. I mean, I bet you, I bet he gets a thermometer. It's a good five degrees cooler under this leaf than it is out here. Look at that. Look at that. That's amazing. It's a wonderful place. He is so happy. He's thrilled. What a blessing this tree is. The world around him can slip off into hell. He could care less about it. All he wants is that tree. He wants Nineveh to burn, but he wants himself to be comfortable. He, was, he has compassion on himself, but not for Nineveh. When we crawl into the head of Jonah, we find that he is more preoccupied with the help of God than the heart of God. He wants what's in God's hand. He don't want what God directs. He wants the blessing instead of the blesser. He cared more about what God gives him than where God sends him. I fear we fall into the same trap. Just yesterday, just yesterday, we were sitting in the men's meeting over here and uh, the topic of our missions came up. I'm thankful for Sister Pam. She, she pays our missionaries and she, we put funds in there uh, from time to time and we take them up on Wednesday night and she pays them. Three months out of the year, we've been able to pay our missionaries. Out of what? We're in the eighth month now? Three months out of the year we've been able to pay them. We've just not had the funds. We've just not had the giving. Listen, I'm not talking, I'm not, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying this to get at your wallet or anything like that, but I want to prove a point here. It wouldn't take $10 a week from every one of us. It wouldn't take $20 a week or $30 per family to offset this to where we could pay all 27 of our missionaries, the 25 or the 50, the paltry, paltry 25 that we have dedicated to give them or some of them 50 a month. If we all said, there's a mission out there that's more important than my little pleasure. Man, we'll go out to eat and drop $60 at the heart of a drop of a hat and do it several times a week. We'll, we'll listen, there is, there is something to Jonah's story here that hits us right in the wallet, right in the heart. We care more about our monetary blessings, more about what he gives us, more about my foreign no more, more about my house, my car, my, my property, my job, my career, everything else, and we care so little. And every bit of that comes from God. You may say it's the sweat of my brow. It's the strength in my arm that pays my... No, listen, God could smite your mind. You wouldn't be able to think a sane thought for the next six months. He could lay you up. You wouldn't be able to make any money. And then you'd see that He's the provider. He's the sustainer of life. He's the one that gives all these things. And we're more preoccupied with what God gives us than where God sends us. That's Jonah's head. That's what he was preoccupied with. 
I just want His blessings. I, don't, I didn't sign up to do stuff. I didn't sign up to, uh, to, to give. I, I didn't sign up to knock on the door. I didn't sign up to do something. I, I just want to come to church and it be a good luck charm. And I get more money and I get more. Um, that's that whole prosperity gospel. If you're looking for that, you're in the wrong place. You're in the, you're in the wrong book. Here we find Jonah, his personal delight. I love my tree. Oh, my tree. So it gives me so much shade. It makes it so comfortable here. I could care less about them. I want them to drop off into hell. I don't, I don't care about that city. But I like my little shade here. I want me to be comfortable. I want me. I don't want to have to sacrifice anything. I, I want to be comfortable. I want to be shaded. I want to be cared for. But I don't want anybody else to be cared for. The preoccupation of Jonah's head. Notice the provisions in Jonah's hut. Now again, I don't claim to be a, a psychologist of fish or a fish whisperer to understand and communicate with them. But again, they see the little glimmering thing. They see the shiny thing. It looks attractive. They can't see the hook. And so they bite on it. They go after it. They go to try to take it. Whether it's the glint of the sunlight on the, on the a glitter or, or it's the curve of that body or the flicker of the tail. Something about it draws their attention and the hook is never seen. The fish strikes and then the hook is felt but it's too late. We could call verse 6 through 8 the attractiveness of the hook. The lure that God is bringing him into. Notice, first of all, I want you to see in the provisions in Jonah's hut, I want you to see that God spread a blessing. God spread a blessing. Verse 6, it says, And the Lord prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. Are you just as shocked just as shocked as Jonah was at the mercy of God to Nineveh, so you and I are shocked at God's mercy to Jonah. This guy has the audacity to get upset because God spared somebody, and he's mad at you, God, and he said what you did was evil, what it was wrong. I mean, for me, if I was God, that's time for a smackdown. Amen. Put him in the dirt. Six foot down. It wouldn't take much. Just bam. And he's six foot under the ground. Wouldn't be a problem. I'd get upset. Well, what does God do? Here's, here's a small blessing. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you a shade tree. If you're going to sit here and you're going to soak about this, I, I, want you to, I want you to have a, a shade tree. Something to comfort you. He's sulking. He's the sulking saint. He's fuming with his arms folded, just waiting and hoping fire comes out from heaven and destroys the city. And what does God do? He gives him some shade. The plant, the plant is a tree that grows to about 8 to 10 feet high. It doesn't necessarily have branches, but it has large leaves that come off the stalk of the tree that are about a foot wide, long leaves about a foot wide, and they reach over to cover the body. This particular tree is the tree from which we get castor oil. It, it is a very particular tree in, the, in that country, in that area. And it's very resourceful. They use this tree. It does crop up. But in verse number 10, verse number 10, when God's talking to Jonah, He said, Neither madest it grow, or, watch this, 
which came up in a night. So this 8 to 10 foot tall tree out of nowhere comes in one night, shoots up. And you see, you heard the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. Kind of like that. He puts the beans in one night, the next thing you know, shoots right up. This tree is a miracle. I want you to understand that. Just like the, uh, the, the fish may well, we can talk about the gullet sizes and being able to swallow a man. But let's just put it right down to it. God made that fish to what it would do in its capacity. Exactly swallow a man. God made this tree and did exactly what He wanted to do. This tree grew up overnight. Eight to ten feet tall. A fully matured tree. And it will, in one night it flourished. And in, in this little hut, God had provided a blessing to the most unworthy candidate. In verse 6 says that it delivered him from his grief. The same word grief here is used in chapter 1 and chapter 3 to refer to the sin of Nineveh. God places a tree to help Jonah survive his sin, his grief. It's a blessing to it. Now listen, sometimes God blesses us despite ourselves you want to have a problem you want to have a problem in your life with different things that take place start thinking that every blessing that you get is because you did something good and every relinquish of a blessing is because you did something bad I'm telling you you will warp your mind you'll warp your mind you really will You want to know why so many are in a prosperity type gospel? In a prosperity of health and wealth and this and that? It's because they follow that mantra. If I do good, God's going to give me good things. If I do bad, God's going to give me bad things. And that's not necessarily the case. God provided a leaf, a comfort to Jonah when he was in the wrong. Same word grief, same word sin, rebellion, iniquity. Not everything that God sends you is because you're doing good or doing right. Praise Him when it does come. But know this, it may not be because you're doing right. It may not be because you're doing wrong. We don't know. It is His choice. Here, He's coming and He gives them Him this blanket, this protection. God spreads out a blessing when we have rotten attitudes and when we're least deserving. And yet He does this majority of the time to teach us something. Here's the hook. Here's the lure. Jonah's going to bite. He's going to bite full on it. He's going to sink his teeth in it. You're going to see it in a minute. You're going to see why there's a hook in there. But this is the lure. They spread a blessing. But then also God sent a blight. Look at verse number 7. But God prepared a worm, just like He prepared a whale, just like He prepared, uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. God prepared a worm. When the morning rose the next day, it smote the gourd that it withered. Several years ago, my parents had a problem in their garden. All their tomatoes looked wonderful from this side. You turned it over and they were rotten on the bottom. It was because of some uh, lack of element or mineral in the ground. And they mixed some in the following season. Everything went back to normal. But my mom and daddy called it blight. It's something that came upon those tomatoes that caused them to rot. It caused them to 
break, that blight, or the, to be rotten, that blight here, God sends upon this tree, this little shade, but it, it comes in the form of a worm. God sends a blight to the plant, and so to uh, so that uh, the plant that elated Jonah's heart. The text says that God prepared a worm. The same word that He used to uh, to speak of how uh, uh, about the fish that swallowed Jonah, the plant that shaded Jonah, the worm that uh, saddened Jonah, and the wind that scorched Jonah. Every one of them prepared by God. Maybe make no mistake about it. God's in control in this book. Whether it's the whale, it's the shade, it's the worm, it's the wind. God's in control of the whole thing. He knows what He's doing. And so he's, God's in control of this whole situation. Listen, just as easily as God can send blessings, God can take them away. While you sulk over the mercy and grace that God has extended to others, you overlook and belittle and take for granted just what God has given you. God can send a little worm into your comforts and just as fast as they arrived, they can be gone. God sends worms into our comforts just when we get at ease. Just when we think we've got it made. Just when our eyes are distracted from the world and the mission God's called us to, He can send a worm and break our, break our tree. Notice, He not only spread a blessing, sent a blight, but He also summoned a blast. Look at verse number 8. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God, what? He prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah that he fainted, wishing himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. By the next day, the plant was de dead. The plant that Jonah delighted in and so much that he revered was dead. Laying there withered on the ground. And now to make matters worse, as the sun rose the next morning, God sent a vehement wind. The word vehement wind here means a silent wind. A complete constant gust of wind coming across the sandy hills of that place. And it blew the temporary, I imagine that it blew the temporary shelter that He had made. That little booth blew it down. Decimated it. And there's Jonah. Laying there with maybe some branches trying to protect his head and the sun beating down hard on him and the wind blowing harsh across him. And Jonah is suffering. Jonah had made now, he's laying there in the sun, the sun beating down. And once again, for the third time, Jonah says, Gosh, I wish I were dead. Lord, I want to die. It's better that I be dead. Once again, trying to look like Elijah, but he ain't no Elijah. Elijah cared about Elijah cared about Gentiles. Elijah, Elijah cared and, and God used him to provide for Gentiles, not, not Jonah. No, he's no Elijah. And so Elijah, uh, so he's here and he's in this miserable state. It seems to be that what he wished for Nineveh, he himself was experiencing. One commentator, as Leslie Allen, said it this way: the shoe. Jonah wanted Nineveh to wear, feeling God's hot wrath, was now on his own foot, and it pinched him. Listen to me. He wanted nothing but destruction. He wanted nothing but the hot wrath of God upon Nineveh. And what is he experiencing now? The hot wrath of God upon him. The vehement wind upon his life. Listen. 
What we sow, we will reap. And when our jealousies and our envies and our uh, uh, determinations of, of, of injustice come up, it can place upon us that which we wish God would have placed on others. Jonah's getting a taste of what he wanted to happen to Nineveh. The attitude that he had towards Nineveh, God is giving him a dose of his own, of his own attitude, of his own wants. He's putting it on his hand. You see, through this hut experience, God is taking him somewhere. God is showing him something. Last of all, not only the preoccupation of Jonah's head, the provision in Jonah's hut, but also the probing at Jonah's heart. You know, it sounds like a cliche, but it doesn't make it any less true. The heart of the problem is a problem with the heart. God has been Trolling the waters in this scene. He's had that bait out there for Jonah. He's had that hook in the water with an attractive tree on it. And Jonah has bitten with all his might. And that, 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 that hook is about to seat. This blinded prophet needed an eye opener to his heart. And God's about to give him a real eye opener in this hook. Number one, I want you to see what God said to Jonah. Verse number 9, And God said to Jonah, Dost thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well and to be angry even unto death. Lying there, delirious from the heat of the sun, once again God comes to Jonah with a question. You know Jonah? You know Jonah is so much the character of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He's angry at the forgiveness of the younger brother. He's furious at the blessings bestowed on the younger brother. And yet the father loves him like he loves the younger brother and comes to him. You remember that? The brother wouldn't come in. And so the father humbles himself to go to the elder son and to speak to him. Luke 15, 28, it says that the father came to the elder brother and entreated him. Puts his, the word entreated means to put his arm around them. To, 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 to whisper to them. To, hold, to draw them near. Can you see that father go to that elder son? The rejoicing of the party behind him. And he goes out on the, to the portico. And his son's facing him on the field. Sulking with his arms folded. And the father comes and puts his arm around him. And maybe he asks, what's wrong? What's going on? Why don't you come in and celebrate with your brother? I believe that here we see this Jonah the same way. God's treating him with such love. Such grace. He comes to him and whispers in his ear. Does that well to be angry for the gourd? Jonah, you're all been out of shape about this gourd dying. Jonah, are you sure you're right? Is there any chance that you could be wrong about your feelings? This is the hook getting deeper. Is there any chance that you could be wrong about the way you feel? Once again, God brings this question and probing the heart of Jonah. And what was Jonah's response? Yes, I'm right. I'm right to be angry. I'm right to be upset. I'm right to be, feel this way. 
I tell you, if I'd have been God, I think a well-placed lightning bolt right there would have took care of the whole situation. I'm telling you what, I, when I, as I read that, I distinctly remember a moment in a shopping store when I smarted off to my mama, and, and I'm telling you what, it felt like a lightning bolt what got a hold of me in that store. Jonah's doing the same thing, smarting off to God. Yes, I'm right, God. I'm sure about it. I'm sure about it so much that I'd rather die than to say I was wrong. Aren't we so much like Jonah? We think we're so right and God's so wrong about some situations in our life. I don't know where God's probing in your heart. I don't know where He's picking on, what He's poking and pushing, and what situation He's talking about in your heart. But I sure know what He's dealing with mine about. I sure know where he's going with this in my own heart, in my own life. We think we're so right and God's so wrong. And if he'd just listened to us, the world would be such a better place. Little did Jonah know that he just bit the hook. With his response, then God pulls the hook. Notice second of all, what God said to Jonah, now what God showed Jonah. <clears throat> then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest, madest it grow, came, it up in, came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six, thousand, uh, six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? You know, I heard this. I don't know much about hunting, but I heard the other day that bow hunters, if you hunt with bows right on top of bow season or shortly, I can tell people are starting to get antsy at work and here, ready for bow season. And they say about bow season, if you're hiding up in a tree with a pulled bow and there is a buck in your sights, that you will do your best to wait until the buck turns a certain angle to where you have direct access to the heart of the buck. That's what God's done to Jonah. He's taken this little seed with the gourd and the worm and the wind and his suffering and he's positioned Jonah at just the right angle to strike at his heart. God releases the arrow right into the heart of Jonah. The gourd, the worm, the wind were all an object lesson. A vivid technicolor mega HD illustration of what Jonah's heart is missing. In verse 10, God starts with the small. He starts with the illustration. The point of personal contact. Jonah has had pity on this plant. He delighted in the plant. He loved the plant. The plant was so beneficial to him. It was a plant that he never placed in the ground, though, as a sapling. He never nurtured it. He never fertilized it. He never did anything for it. He never watered it. It just came up overnight, all of a sudden, and, and, and had a life of just a few days. And Jonah is absolutely heartbroken that God took away this plant. Heartbroken at what took place. And now, here's the hook of the book. God says, shouldn't I spare Nineveh? Jonah's compassion for the plant is compared to God's compassion for Nineveh. 
Jonah never placed a sapling in the soil, but God was the creator of every bit of teeming life in that city. They all had the stamp of His handiwork, His image upon their lives. He had provided as the Father of heaven in common grace had provided wheat and water and corn such that the sparrows are fed and the people are fed and the city has sustenance to eat. He had provided for this city. He had given to this city. He had given them everything. He had nurtured them. He had protected them. He had hoped that they would turn from their ungodliness. He had hoped and longed for its righteousness. And he pitied their state of ignorance. He cared for even the animals, the four-footed beasts that lived in that city and around that city. And Jonah should think it'd be so easy decision for God to take his hand and crush Nineveh. There's so much life there. He created it. It has his image. It has his likeness. And Jonah is weeping over a plant that he never planted. He never did anything for. All he did was take from it. And yet he's heartbroken. How would God feel if he took his wrath and poured it out on a city and and destroyed? This gives me special insight. I wonder how it pained the heart of God to pour out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we're good about trumpeting the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and waving it like some kind of banner. But the truth of the matter is, I wonder if the sorrow of God's heart wasn't broken 10,000 times over. No matter how many Sodomites, no matter how much wickedness was there, it was His creation. It was people that He had made. He had longed for their righteousness. He had longed for their conversion. He had longed for them to turn from their wicked ways. How it must have pained the heart of God to pour out His wrath upon, 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 upon uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And here he says, listen, Jonah, listen. Why shouldn't I have compassion on these people? They responded to your message. And any step, and any step towards me, I will receive that. You remember, you remember when Abraham was pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah? If there's, if there, I can't remember the numbers exactly. If there's 50 people, will you spare the city? Yes, I'll spare them. If there's 40 people, will you spare the city? If there's 20, will you spare Yes, I'll spare them. If there are 10 people in the city, God, will you spare the city? Yes, I'll spare the city. And not even 10 people within the city made any kind of direct step towards God. Listen. I told you from the beginning, this book of of Jonah probes the great depths of God's love. Love for Nineveh that Jonah couldn't even scratch the surface of. Could not fathom in his own mind. Don't you see Jonah? Don't you see his attitude? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. God was the husbandman of that city. God was the gardener. Jesus taught in John 15, My Father's the husbandman and I am the, the vine. He's the vine dresser. God had been the vine dresser. He'd been the gardener. He'd been the husbandman of that city. 
And, and I don't understand his sovereignty and the, his sovereignty and the will of these people, but I do know he had a heart of love for those people who hated him, who hated his ways, who hated his law, who hated him as a creator. And yet his heart gushed with love for them in so much that one step from the brink of destruction, God would say, withhold it. Hold back destruction. Hold. They took a step towards me. They came to me. They made things right. Hold back judgment. Hold back the winds of wrath. How can we think that it be such, a, and a, be such an unimaginable thing for God to have mercy on them? This speaks to us right where we are. Are we more occupied with getting things that we want from God? And decorating our little huts and taking our little plots of land and stakeouts in this world and building them and making a nice place of, of comfort for us while a world around us and a world uh, uh, across the sea goes to hell, falls off into eternity without so much as a heartbeat from us. Without so much as a tear from us. Are we more preoccupied with our homes, our hobbies, our pleasures and prosperity than the great commandment and the great commission? We can be so much like Jonah. So much like Jonah. More interested in growing a church than fulfilling a commission. More interested than enlarging a ministry instead of giving mercy. To the undeserving. To the lowest of the law. God help me. God help me. God help us all. Did Jonah make it right? We don't know. I find it interesting that with the elder brother. We don't know if he made it right either. It just ends. It ends in a truncated matter. It just stops. I believe that my suspicion is. Is that Jonah. This was the eye opener. He saw the wickedness of his thought life. He saw the division of his heart. He saw the, uh, the animosity that he had toward a people that God loved and desired and created. And, and he made things right with God. I, I think the book stands as a testimony. I'm telling you what. If I was writing the book of Jonah about my life, I'd make it a lot prettier. Amen. I'd, and if I, hadn't, if I wouldn't write with God, I'd, you know, I'd told some told some told tales and, and did it from a little bit more of my perspective. Amen. It made me look a little bit better. I don't think Jonah did that. I think Jonah knew what he did was wrong. His attitude was wrong. He was all wrong. All wrong. God backed him in the corner in the last few verses of the scripture. Listen. Let God back us all into a corner. I feel sometimes that we're more interested in trying to put bodies in this pew than trying to see people saved. I think we're, we're more interested that, that sometimes we meet, our, we meet our budgets or our bottom lines instead of expanding the kingdom of God and being about His business. We're more interested in taking care of nurturing our life and, 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 and trying to progress and expand our little kingdom instead of being on His agenda for His kingdom, for His glory, for His expansion of what God's doing in this community where we are. It's a subtle hook in this book, but it's powerful. And it don't let any of us off. Every one of us look like Jonah. Let's all stand. A moment of invitation. Every head bowed and every eye closed.
If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you've never been saved, you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, I want you to know that what we just went over is an astounding view of God's love for you. That He loves you so much that He is willing to stay the mercy of God, the, the judgment of God, that He's willing to give His only Son to die for you on the cross, to pay your sin debt. He loves you so much because you're stamped with His image. You are His creation. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. Will you not come and receive Him today? Would you not trust Him as Lord and Savior? If you're lost, please respond. God's love is amazing, superabounding towards you. And it's even so deep that some of us that have known God for years, decades, can't even fathom it. Get lost in it. Don't understand it. It's an amazing love. You respond. You come to the Lord Jesus. If you're here today, and the truth be matter, the truth, truth be known that the hook of the book of Jonah has got you. You're more concerned about your agenda than his. You're more concerned about the infinitesimal pleasures here today and gone tomorrow of this life as compared to the eternity of souls and the glory of God that will go on forever and ever and ever. Come make it right with the Lord. Come meet me. Let's make things right with the Lord. Let's be the church that is not Jonah. That is as far from Jonah as we could possibly get. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray you bless this invitation. Draw people, draw souls to Jesus. Let people be saved, born again, Father. For all of us that, that bear a striking, a striking resemblance to Jonah, God, let us be rid of it. God, may, let us make things right with you. Let us exit this book on good terms with you. Hearing Jonah's message and conforming our lives to it. God, give us that kind of love. Give us a love that, that, survives, that survives wrongs. Give us a love that is long-suffering. Give us a love that is superabounding. Give us a love that is constantly giving and longing for people to make things right with us and with you. God, let us have an, an, an unending love because you've had such a love for us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I'm trusting to the unseen hand. We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand podcast has been a help and blessing to you. For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home. The Unseen Hand